Father, be with each one of us just now as we consider your kingdom, the nature of your kingdom. Uh, What does it look like? Uh, Help us to better identify it in our own minds and help us to become a part of it in this world. Amen. Okay, so but before we do that, um, one of you asked an interesting question a couple weeks ago, and so I thought as a little diversion, it's, it's maybe interesting just to talk about. I mentioned during the temptations that um, a, a key part of that is that Jesus refused to use his power for selfish reasons, that every miracle he did, every miracle, was for others. Okay, and but someone kind of brought this up, I think uh, half-joking, but I thought it was an interesting question. Uh, what about this? Was this a selfish miracle? It's kind of a weird story um, here that Jesus and his disciples came to Capernaum. The collectors of the temple tax came to Peter and asked, does your teacher pay the temple tax? Of course, Peter answered. When Peter went into the house, Jesus spoke up first. Simon, what is your opinion? And when Jesus asks you a question like that as a disciple, it's usually because you maybe did something that needed a little feedback. And Jesus said, who pays duties or taxes to the kings of this world, the citizens of the country or the foreigners? And of course, the foreigners, answered Peter. And so kind of the the trap here was who does pay the temple tax? And if you go back and read about who paid the temple tax, there were certain people that were excluded from the temple tax. If you were a prophet, if you were an important rabbi, teacher, you were excluded from the temple tax. So Peter's admission that Jesus pays the temple tax was kind of like an admission that Jesus wasn't very special. Okay, and so this was kind of a problem. And so Jesus here has to talk with Peter about this. And so it's always just fascinating to consider how Jesus deals with all of these traps and controversies. And I'm just amazed at uh, just how brilliant uh, these are dealt with. So in this case, Jesus said, well then, that means that the citizens don't have to pay. Okay, again, using that illustration. But we don't want to offend these people, so go to the lake and drop in a line, pull up the first fish you hook, and in its mouth you will find a coin worth enough for my temple tax and yours. Take it and pay them our taxes. So the question was, uh, well, you and I can't do that. Or, uh, you know, if you need money for Taco Bell or whatever, then just uh, do something, open a book, and there's the money for you and your friend. So was this a, a selfish, here, self-centered um, kind of miracle? And I think uh, the most interesting explanation I've read of this, which, which I, I like, is that, uh, don't you think that this got around or that someone went with Peter when he went fishing to get that fish? And don't you think it was kind of well known that, uh, well, look at how Jesus paid the temple tax. He got it from the mouth of a fish that he just pulled up out of the lake. And so if you were this um, someone trying to trap Jesus and the disciples and you were to go around and say, well, look, Jesus is nothing special. He pays the temple tax. Wouldn't you have to also add, well, P.S., the way he got it was he got it from a fish. So Jesus in this miracle reveals his divinity and therefore kind of shoots down the the accusation here that nothing special is about Jesus. So the miracle, again, was a demonstration uh, that was to reveal that, yes, in fact, uh, he was divine. So I wouldn't call it a selfish miracle. But what we want to think about is God's kingdom. And maybe I can just have you think in your mind. If you had to write three or four sentences to define um, what is God's kingdom. 
Uh, what do you imagine it looks like? Is it future? Is it something that happens now? Um, what would you look at and identify and say, now that's God's kingdom, I recognize that. Okay, that's what we're trying to answer. And I think there are very few questions that are more important as we consider the Gospels. Jesus talks about it again and again and again, my kingdom, my kingdom, my kingdom. So we want to know what it looks like. And of course, the words here in the context of Jesus saying, you know, I could call legions of angels. Okay, I could deal with this whole situation. And then he says to Pilate, my kingdom does not belong to this world. If my kingdom belonged to this world, my followers would fight. No, my kingdom does not belong here. Okay, my mindset about the kingdom for, for I think most of my life had been, well, it's a future. It'll come in the sky with lots of angels and then we'll see the kingdom of God but it's not, not something that, that really happens in the here and now. But let's just read some of the verses about this. First of all, uh, we've read these already, but the nearness of the kingdom. John the Baptist, Jesus, the very first words we have recorded talk about the nearness. So John the Baptist came to the uh, Judean wilderness, began preaching. His message was repent. Remember we said that could be change your mind. Repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. Near meaning 2,000 plus years. Uh, what did he mean? It's near. And then Jesus began to preach. Repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. How near? This would seem to indicate, hey, it's coming. You're going to see it. It's happening. And Jesus, again, just the first few words we have. This is even before the Sermon on the Mount. He traveled through the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news. We associate the good news, the gospel, as a message about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. Okay, so again, what's the essence of the message? Okay, a little story uh, here, uh, just to kind of wrap our minds around it. The Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, and we will definitely come back to this passage because it's another one of these back and forth uh, interesting exchanges. And they came together, and one of them, a teacher of the law, tried to trap him with a question. Teacher, he asked, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important commandment. The second most important commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Okay, where did Jesus get these? New thought. It's a direct quote from the Old Testament, right? So as he read through this, he pulled out, here are the most important commandments. Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law of Moses and the teachings of the prophets depend on these two commandments. The teacher of the law said to Jesus, well done, teacher. It is true, and I, I wish this happened more often, where Jesus did something and someone was persuaded. And, and this individual was impressed with the answer. Well done, teacher. It is true, as you say, that only the Lord is God and there's no other God but he. And you must love God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength. And you must love your neighbor as you love yourself. And repeating what Jesus said. It is more important to obey these two commandments than to offer on the altar animals and other sacrifices to God. Jesus noticed how wise his answer was, and so he told him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And again, if, if the kingdom is way down the line, then this would mean, what, you're about to die? No, isn't Jesus saying he's recognizing that answer? He's identified something 
really important. This man has latched on to this idea about loving God with all your heart, loving your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus validates that by saying, you're close. Okay, which would suggest, again, it's, it has more to do with coming into a message, okay, an internal process than something externally uh, that comes to us. You are not far from the kingdom. And again, in this story, Jesus is just shooting down the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and so no one dared to ask him any more questions after that. So who receives it? Uh, We read this in Matthew 5 a few weeks ago, that it's happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Okay, spiritually proud, and it's not going to happen. So a prerequisite here is to know you are spiritually poor. Again, the, the Pharisees' problem, spiritual pride, is just impervious. It makes it so difficult and even surprising that Jesus would say this, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. You religious people who never miss church and always pay tithe and read the Bible and do all of those things, that tax collectors and prostitutes are going in ahead of you. Okay, kind of surprising. So, where is the kingdom? Okay, and, and on this, I love this verse, that when the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come, his answer was, the kingdom of God does not come in such a way as to be seen. No one will say, look, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you, or among you. It could be translated either way. But uh, again, as I just read all of the, the verses and the evidence about the kingdom of God, it's, it is an internal thing. It's something that comes within us. Okay, so we want to try to understand what is it exactly? What is it that comes within? Yes, there is a, you know, an everlasting kingdom and all of that, but what Jesus is talking about is a kingdom he wants to establish here and now. So the first point is that the kingdom of God does not refer primarily to a far-off event. It is a kingdom that comes within. Second is a prerequisite for receiving the kingdom is to recognize your own spiritual poverty. Now, a number of parables of Jesus address the kingdom. So we're just going to kind of go through uh, some of these quickly. So Jesus used parables to tell many things, and you're all familiar with this one. We won't read the whole parable, but it's the parable of the man who went to sow grain. And you remember he scattered the seed in the field. Some of it fell along the path. The birds came and ate it up. Okay, so we have the long parable in Matthew 13. It's it's really an interesting story. Okay, but what, what I want to talk about is Jesus' interpretation of the parable. Remember, the disciples asked him, You know, can you explain this? And so Jesus' interpretation of this parable, it's about the kingdom of God. So he says, those who hear the message about the kingdom, again, it's a message, but do not understand it, are like the seeds that fall along the path. The evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in them. And again, for me, so much of what seems relevant and and explanatory is again to put the adversary in there as, as often as we can. And I think the message about the kingdom is so crucial that to try to snatch that up and away from someone would be, you know, one of the most uh, important things that I think Satan would, would be up to, trying to snatch that message away. Okay, we're still on this parable, and Jesus would say that the seeds sown in the good soil stand for those who hear the message, the message about the kingdom, and understand it. What happens if you take in the message and you understand it? Well, there's a result. They bear fruit. Some as much as 100, others 60, others 30. Okay, And again, in this context about this parable, 
Jesus said, you know, if you would internalize it, understand it, that their eyes would see, their ears would hear, their minds would understand, and they would turn to me, says God, and I would heal them. So the the message about the kingdom internalized has a transforming, um, healing effect. We're changed by it. Again, it's not something we do. It's a natural process, but there is bearing fruit and healing, not as a legalistic thing, trying to keep the rules, but as as something uh, very natural that happens from internalizing the message. Okay, several other uh, parables. Again, we need lots of them to try to round out and put together a picture of what the kingdom is like. So Jesus says, well, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? What parable shall we use to explain it? And um, I think when we, when we get to the bottom line that we see very little of the kingdom of God in our earthly experience. And I almost imagine Jesus looking around and saying, hmm, what can I use to describe it? It's so unlike anything you're experiencing here. What parable shall we use? Well, it's like this. A man takes a mustard seed, the smallest seed in the world, and plants it in the ground. After a while, it grows up and becomes the biggest of all plants. It puts out such large branches that the birds come and make their nests in its shade. Okay, this would kind of overlap with what we said last time. It's when it's internalized and it unavoidably has a dramatic effect within us. And so here we see this tiny mustard seed, the message about the kingdom, and it has dramatic effects. Same thing here with this parable. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like this. A woman takes some yeast and mixes it with a bushel of flour until the whole batch of dough rises. So again, something very tiny. Yeast, and what happens? You knead the dough, it goes throughout the whole dough, and it makes the whole loaf rise. Okay, so again, it's something that is internalized that has a transforming effect. Here's another one. The kingdom of heaven is like this. A man happens to find a treasure hidden in a field. He covers it up again and is so happy that he goes and sells everything he has and then goes back and buys that field. Also, the kingdom of heaven is like this. A man is looking for fine pearls. And when he finds one that is unusually fine, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that pearl. And um, I think that when we really glimpse the true nature, the beauty of God's kingdom, uh, it's so unbelievably attractive that you would literally give up everything for it. I mean, I think, again, it just describes something here that, boy, if you catch this, if you really get a glimpse of it, if you appreciate it, internalize it, if that becomes everything that your life revolves around, you're like the people in this story. You know, you would sell everything to get that pearl. Uh, you would do anything for it. becomes the way you relate to the world. <clears throat> So again, when the message about the kingdom is understood, perceived as desirable and beautiful, uh, we've said the result is transformation. So, um, and just another little interesting point here. Jesus asked his disciples, do you understand all these things? Yes, they said, we do. And you know, you read the context with the disciples and you can't believe they really did, but they said, we do. And then he added, every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. We're still talking about the kingdom. And I think the, the meaning here is uh, when we begin to see the kingdom in, a, in an entirely new light, as we read the Bible and we reread the very, very familiar stories, um, they take on an entirely different 
picture, an entirely different emphasis. We look at things in an entirely new uh, frame of reference. And so, you know, like the homeowner, you bring something, okay, we're talking about um, Gideon or whatever. Well, uh, that story takes on a, a different message. Anything you can think about, and I think, you know, my experience reading the Bible is um, it, it's just like, it seems like it's going through layers, that it just keeps keeping uh, getting uh, deeper and more beautiful, and it's unlike, uh, I can't think of another book I would want to read twice. You know, when I read a neurology textbook, it's done. Now, I never would, would want to look at it again, really, unless it's just for reference or something like that. Okay, I don't have that experience with the Bible, even though the stories are familiar, the words are familiar. Um, putting it together um, is, um, is something that is um, it's just a very wonderful process. So I think the better we understand the kingdom, uh, we have a new angle, new aspect, new ways of understanding uh, what's really important. Okay, so what's the hierarchy? What's the top-down list in the kingdom of heaven? Okay, and here Jesus is redundant. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who humbles himself and becomes like this child. He takes the child, sits the child on his lap in the context of the disciples, always arguing about who's going to be first in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so the disciples came to Capernaum, and after going indoors, Jesus asked his disciples. He's always asking them questions when they're doing something they shouldn't. What were you arguing about on the road? Okay, and how would you like Jesus saying that to you if this is what you were saying? They would not answer him because on the road they had been arguing among themselves about who was the greatest. Okay, what's amazing is on the way to the upper room uh, in the Luke account, the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. I mean, it's the night before Jesus is dying, and, and this is what they're talking about. Who is going to be the greatest? And so that, that, was, that was their kingdom. That's the, the hierarchy kingdom that they had in mind. So Jesus sat down, called the 12 disciples, and said to them, whoever wants to be first must place himself last of all and be the servant of all. Okay, it is The reason I said it's so unlike any kingdom we can recognize is every kingdom that we will hear or read about, it is top-down. You have a person in charge of authority, and then you have people below that and below that and below that. Uh, That's the way the kingdom of the world operates. And here, whoever is greatest is the servant. Whoever is greatest in my kingdom is the one who humbles himself. It it is truly an upside-down kingdom. That's why it's hard to identify with, maybe hard to recognize. Remember when the devil took him to the high place and tempted him, he offered him all the kingdoms of the world, I will give you all the power and glory of these kingdoms. That's what kingdoms of the world are about. It's power, authority, frequently coercion. Okay, that's not what God's kingdom is like. And here is, if I just had to pick one story to describe this is what it isn't like and this is what it is like, uh, it would be this story. And and I'm happy that that we have these. Um, They're embarrassing stories. If you're the disciples, you know, you wouldn't want this written down and, and preserved Okay, but they're very, really crucial. So the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request, he asked. And she replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one in your right and one in your left. And again, I would be embarrassed if this were recorded, that my mom came and asked Jesus if I could be you know, right at the top. You wouldn't want that in there. But it's, it's really good that it is because we get Jesus' response. He answered by saying to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. 
And Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. It's kind of a gracious uh, response. But now listen to how it continues. When the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. Okay, they wanted to be first too. But Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. That is a great description of every kingdom of the world. Okay, any nation that the rulers lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. It's just the way, the nature of how things develop. It's, it's a power structure and someone has power over someone else and so on. But notice, among you, in my kingdom, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served. Remember, this is God in human form did not come to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the nature of God's kingdom, we even see the king of the kingdom becoming the humble servant and serving. It's, it is such a, an upside-down kingdom. And I guess we could say that what we're usually used to is exerting power over people. And I think one thing we could say about God's kingdom is that its force comes from coming under people, serving people. Okay, It is not an authoritarian, coercive kind of a kingdom. When even the king lives this way, then certainly the subjects should live that way as well. Okay, And we just contrast with you know, the nature of the opposing kingdom, which every time you read a poetic or other description of Satan, it's always exactly the opposite. It's always me first, pride, that kind of thing. So the description here of the morning star or Lucifer, how you were cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the furthest sides of the north where the gods assemble. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. This is you know, just reflective, really, of the disciples' wishes to be first, to sit at the right hand. Okay, and so the ultimate adversary, we just see here how many times, I, I'm going up. Okay, so what we see is a very dramatic contrast is Satan here in his kingdom is really, you know, I will do anything, including, if necessary, kill you in order that I may continue on my ladder up. Okay, and we see the opposite in God's kingdom, which is I will do everything, including suffer and die for you, in order to bring you into my kingdom. Okay, so they're just like elevators going in opposite directions. Okay, this is not what God's kingdom is like. Okay, so maybe uh, some of you haven't seen this. I've actually never seen Dr. House. I've just had people tell me that he's kind of the epitome of a very arrogant, condescending uh, physician. So um, whether that's true or not, I can't actually verify. But the reason I bring this up is for physicians... You know, all of you are headed into positions that really have a lot of power. Um, you know, people look up to doctors. You'll have nurses. You'll have medical students working with you. Patients will come in eager to see you for whatever problem they have. And so it is very easy for a physician to begin to go up the kingdom, the world kind of a, of a model, okay, that is associated with pride and arrogance and uh, narcissism and all of that. 
Okay, I think what prevents us from this very natural thing, it's so easy um, for that to happen, is when we really focus on, you know, the king of the universe did not come to be served, but to serve. And if God is like that, it, it has to say that our life should be like that as well. Okay, to really take the opposite uh, approach. Okay, and if you've had a physician care for you, do all the right things, and at the same time, there's uh, humility and graciousness uh, that can't help but, but speak well of God in the process. So, again, I think, uh, you know, there are several different ways you can live your life, but uh, the, the Jesus approach here, living like the kingdom of God, uh, has a very radical effect. So the attitude we should have, physicians, anyone else, is the one that Christ had. He always had the nature of God, but he did not think that by force he should try to remain equal with God. Instead of this, of his own free will, he gave up all he had. So again, that descent is what's so remarkable. Okay, we always want to go higher and higher. Okay, but God here taking a path down to the lowest point of his free will. He gave up all he had. He took the nature of a servant. He became like a human being and appeared in human likeness. He was humble. He walked the path of obedience all the way to death, his death on the cross, going down to the very lowest point. Okay, so the, the nature of God's kingdom, um, again, it is service. It is coming under people rather than trying to coerce and come over people to control. Okay, so uh, again, it's just summary points here. It's the polar opposite of the kingdoms of this world, which are all based on force and power. It's a kingdom based on service. So what is the authority of the kingdom? What's the authority of God's kingdom? And uh, I can't help but read this every few months because it's one of the most powerful stories for me. So you've all heard it, I'm sure. But I wish you hadn't because I like it when people are surprised by this. Where, where Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority. It's interesting. He knew that the Father had given him authority over everything. And then he'd come from God and would return to God. He's got it all put together. He has all authority. And it's in the context of his disciples squabbling over who should be first in the kingdom. That's the setting. And so what he did in recognition is he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and he washed their feet. The role of a servant. Okay, Jesus was continually trying to break through, my kingdom is not this way. Stop this, I want to be first kind of a thing. Let me show you. I'll give you an illustration. And he washed their feet. Okay, I think a very, very powerful, I think this had a dramatic effect on his disciples in the long run. And then he said, I've just washed your feet. I'm your Lord and teacher. You should wash one another's feet. Okay, not so much a command to do this as a service, but um, in church or whatever, but that's the way we are to live our lives. Okay, when we get to Revelation, which we will um, probably after January or February, um, we could give a lot of verses on this, but the opposing kingdom is always using force and coercion. So the beast forced all the people, small and great, rich and poor, slave and free, to have a mark placed on their right hands or on their foreheads. So um, just if we're trying to recognize, is this God's kingdom or not? The fear, force, and coercion is, I think, a hallmark of the opposing kingdom. God's kingdom, it just... It just is, by its very nature. The love and service, it attracts people. It doesn't force people. Okay, so uh, a verse I like on this, um, or not a verse, but a quote, that God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one can cast a pebble to the earth, couldn't he? He has all power. 
but he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. That's quite a powerful claim there. Compelling power is only found under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are to be the prevailing power. That's the power, not force. Truth, love, mercy, uh, that's what brings people into God's kingdom. So it was God's purpose to place things on an eternal basis of security. And in the councils of heaven, it was decided that time must be given for Satan to develop the principles which were the foundation of his system of government. If you've ever had a class here from Sigby Tonstead, he is really into that point that Earth's experience, yes, it reveals God's goodness, God's character, the cross, all of that, um, but it does also um, develop the character and the principles of the other kingdom, the kingdom that we don't want to live in forever. Satan had claimed that these, his principles were superior to God's, and time was given for the working of Satan's principles that they might be seen by the heavenly universe. And again, that contrast then in the end becomes very clear for us. Okay, so uh, the, the kingdom message, much more should be said, but I, again, just want to highlight that when we talk about the good news, the gospel, that it is good news about the kingdom. So we want to really work on our, how we define the kingdom and how we define the king of the kingdom. And so I think as we, again, begin to describe to people God's kingdom, well, it looks kind of like this. And we're describing that kind of service, humility, love for others. Um, that is great good news if that's the way God's kingdom is going to run for all of eternity, under those principles rather than force and coercion. And notice it will be preached through all the world as a witness. Yes, preaching is important, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is living it out as a witness. Okay, That's what is transformative for people around us. Okay, so a last uh, few points here. Um, I'm going to uh, skip through a few of these. Um, Peter has an inter interesting interaction with Jesus on this point. Um, and Jesus said, "Why? Uh, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter's response here, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, okay, Greek here is Petros, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I don't know uh, if uh, some of you have just had this image from childhood of what this means, but uh, someone just pointed this out uh, to me several years ago. I'd always imagined this as a, an offensive weapon, the gates of hell. I don't know. Somehow it was just a scary thing that was running after you, right? But uh, what is a gate for? gate is for keeping something in and keeping something out, the gates of hell. And I think uh, the significance here is Peter here, I think he's... He's on to something, okay? A very key thing. Who is Jesus, okay? And who is the king? And what is the nature of his kingdom? And that this truth, this understanding, 
I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, which will destroy the gates of hell, shatter them open. Okay, so I think it's it's getting back to the same kind of a thing, that this message, this understanding that there's nothing that uh, Satan has no um, defense against that. When it's lived out in the life, um, it's just magnetic. It's very powerful. So I like the Message Bible. A church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. Okay, so Petros here is a small pebble, a rock. Petra is a large, fixed, immovable rock. Okay, so Peter is the little rock that has come to a very, very important truth. And of course, God is ultimately the rock. Okay, but just if we go forward in history, very quickly, a summary of what's happened since then. When was the kingdom lived out? I'd say if any time in history when it was lived out other than just in the life of Jesus, it was in the early Christian church. They lived out the kingdom. This is our best example of what the kingdom looks like. It is a real example. Okay, so you remember the description in Acts, and there are many more verses on this, that the believers were one in mind and heart. None of them said that any of their belongings were their own, but they all shared with one another everything they had. There was no one in the group who was in need. Those who owned fields or houses would sell them, bring the money received from the sale, turn it over to the apostles. The money was distributed according to the needs of the people. Okay, this is, uh, you know, and the description goes on that people were added every day to their numbers. All right, this is a good example of the kingdom. Okay, no one is trying to go up the ladder of success. Okay, people are serving and they're giving. And the dramatic effect, it's just amazing when you think about how Christianity took off in just 100 years or so from the death of Jesus. So they got the message. But if we look at uh, just what has happened, um, starting with, I would say, Constantine. So remember, for a few hundred years, the famous quote here from Tertullian that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. When the, ch- when the church suffered, okay, when people died, when they gave of their lives, that's when everything spread. That's when the church took off. But then uh, with uh, the conversion, whatever actually happened with Constantine, that there was a dramatic change. The kingdom now was different. The kingdom now became authoritarian. And this was the first time anyone associated the Christian faith with violence. You evangelize by violence. You evangelize by, in an authoritarian, coercive way, try to bring people into the Christian church. That's not the description of the kingdom that we just read. But that's how, that was the emphasis. Okay, and if we just skip forward here to Charlemagne, a command here that if there is anyone of the Saxon people lurking among them unbaptized, and if he scorns to come to baptism and stay a pagan, let him die. Okay, you would kill someone, really, if they would not convert to Christianity. And of course, all the stories you're familiar with of people that would do things like try to translate the Bible into a language that the common people could understand and uh, the, the torture and the murder that took place in the name of the church, in the name of Christ. Again, the kingdom is not about those kinds of methods. Okay, completely misrepresented the kingdom. But there was a, a change from the church becoming the persecuted minority, suffering and serving, to now the church being in authority, in a position of power, and using that power to try to convert and coerce. This is, again, not what God's kingdom looks like. So... The authority of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is spread by coming under people, not coming over people, not compelling from above. And so this is one reason here, I think, when we talk about separation of church and state, it's so crucial because no kingdom of the world looks like God's kingdom. Okay, it just isn't possible. Kingdoms of the world, by their very way they're designed, 
Do not come under people and serve people. And so the danger here is when we unite, one of the dangers when we unite church and state is what does that do to the message of the church? Okay, I think we need to be separate and distinct. Whatever we call Christian, it looks like Jesus. It looks like service. It looks that way. It does not look like uh, a coercive power. And so a problem, I think, oftentimes is uh, uh, nationalistic idolatry where we relate to the world not primarily as kingdom of God subjects, but as kingdom of the world subjects. We relate to the world predominantly as a member of a political party, a member of a certain country, and that we relate to events in that way. And I think we need to relate to everything that happens around us as a kingdom of God subject. That's our primary kingdom. Okay, and we're in very danger, a great danger, I think, if you know we have a have a team that we're trying to achieve by maybe other methods. So I love Will Rogers' quote. Mixing religion and politics is like mixing manure and ice cream. It doesn't do much for the manure, but it sure ruins the ice cream. Okay, so if we if we mix the two, it just destroys the beauty of the kingdom. Okay, the kingdom looks like medical students going out to the mission field or you know all of the good things that, that so many medical students um, here do. So we don't want to taint that by getting you know embedded with with politics and, and trying to mix the two. Let's keep the kingdom message, whatever we call Christian, that it looks like Christ. Okay, let's pray. Father, I pray for each person here that the message about your kingdom, which we do not fully understand, but that we would understand it better, that it would be internalized, that we would really see the beauty of your kingdom, and that it would work out a change within each one of us. Amen.